Today's passage is Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest be clothed in righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath for which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired for it, it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will close with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat this morning. Zane, you're far too tall, buddy. Making me feel bad already. I just got up here. Well, one of the greatest seasons of my life was one uh, of like great spiritual invigoration. And, and for a lot of us, uh, that came by way of like late high school, early college, maybe sometime in college. But there was a specific reason why it was a great season of spiritual growth. And it was all because of music. It was all because of music. I, uh, uh, I love music. I love listening to music. I love pl- uh, you know, playing music. I was a really uh, desperately struggling drummer and percussionist in, uh, in high school, but I, I love doing it. And specifically, it wasn't just music. It was musical worship. Uh, very specifically, like it was musical worship. Uh, God had used a love of percussion to kind of draw me into a church. Uh, I don't know what God used in your life to bring you into a body of believers. For most of it, it was family. But what was it that actually like, got purchased in your life and had you kind of uh, take ownership of like, getting into a church? For me, it was percussion. I loved playing. I was in uh, a desperately bad uh, little band, but it gave me the space to actually play in some high school worship scenarios. Uh, went to Christ Chapel and got to play in the high school student ministry. I loved going on Wednesday night to Focus Worship, where all of these uh, just very, very excellent musicians, but also very humble musicians, would play worship music that just met me in that time of my life. Uh, That time was actually called Focus on Wednesday night, and I still think about it 
uh, on a weekly basis, think about the things that I learned there. I learned uh, during that time that worship was individual, that it was corporate, and that it was evangelical. I learned that it was in- individual. Like I had probably, I grew up in the church. I went to, uh, I mean, just hundreds, maybe, uh, you know, of uh, worship gatherings, but I'm not sure that I really owned it. I'm not sure that I really sang out. I'm not sure that it was really an expression of anything inside of me, but during that season, I learned that worship was individual. It was something that I actually needed to do, that I actually needed to make a joyful noise. But it wasn't just something that was individual. I remember learning during that time that worship is something that is corporate, that musical worship is something that I add into. It is not just about me. It is about a larger group of brothers and sisters getting together and actually raise their voices to a mighty king. There is something corporate about worship. But here's the thing that I was very surprised to learn. I was surprised to learn just how evangelistic it was, how worship is evangelistic. Us getting together and doing this weird thing where we sing together these uh, great hymns and sing songs of praise actually speaks to something greater, something bigger. We wouldn't do it if we didn't think that it was something that elevated beyond the space that we were in and reached the ears of God and actually gave him some sort of glory. But even in the midst of that, we're declaring something. We're declaring that we believe something. I recall very vividly, I had a, uh, a good friend named Eugene. Uh, Eugene had cerebral palsy. He ended up being one of the ushers in my wedding. And uh, he and I built a, a friendship, and I started bringing him to those focus nights. And I remember the first night that I brought him, he and I were kind of sitting in the back. He was in a wheelchair. He, 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 couldn't, uh, he couldn't sing the same way that most of us can. Um, you know, he just had, didn't have full control over his vocal range. And I remember just uh, standing alongside of him, worshiping a great God, and hearing him just shout out and make a joyful noise. And I just remember being like broken my spirit. He, he was like evangelizing me. I remember just bawling in that space, realizing that there was a testimony alongside of my brother, that there was a testimony to the people around us, that we were actually singing to something. We are singing for a purpose. So one of the greatest opportunities that I see for growth in our little humble church is the area of just corporate worship. It's singing. I want for us to be a loud and singing church. I, I mentioned this to a dear friend that doesn't go to our church a, 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 about a year and a half ago or so. I just said, I want to see our church being a singing church. And he asked me, what do, what do you mean by that? Like, why, why would you sing? Why do you sing? Why do Christians sing? And it was a good kind of question. We here at City Church are pretty reserved and humble people, I think, by God's grace. You're not saying that about yourself. I'm saying that about you. But one of the things that that does kind of let itself over into is a lot of times our worship is very quaint. It's very reserved. It's quieter. And what I want for City Church to do is to raise our voices, but to raise our voices for the right reason. Not just simply because we're told to or we think that it might be a good thing. We see it in Scripture, but because there is something in us that has to get out. So we have the delightful duty here at City Church to testify, to bring a testimony, to both congregationally and individually, to the glory of a really great God. And that is what I think is at the essence of the jubilant psalm that we have in front of us. So if you would, please join with me there in Psalm 
132. What you will find is, is that we don't cover the whole psalm this morning. There's just far too much. We're going to take one kind of lane. We're going to aim at it. We're going to get, hopefully, all the way there. But what I want you to do is to learn what this psalm is about, and at some point in time this week, revisit it and see if there is something more that the Lord is revealing to you in it. Study this passage this week. We won't be doing it completely uh, faithfully this morning. There's just far too much. But here in Psalm 132, what we find is that saints sing with jubilant joy in the presence of the divine dwelling. Saints sing in jubilant joy in the presence of the divine dwelling. I'm going to intend to convince you of that using the psalm this morning. We are continuing on in our Psalms of Ascent series. The Psalms of Ascent are a a specific group of uh, Hebrew poetry and songs that are meant to be recited and sung on the way up to worship at the temple. This psalm in particular is filled with great joy. You can read it and hear that this is not a song of lament. It's not a psalm of wisdom. It's not a uh, poem that was meant to take in somberly. It's something that is jubilant, that is joyful. This psalm particularly expresses exuberant affections and confident jubilation. But why are God's people a singing people? Why do we sing in worship? How would you go about explaining that to a friend? Now, for most of us, if a friend just asked us what my friend did, why do you want to be a singing people, uh, we would uh, point to the Psalms. We would just point to their existence and say, God wants us to sing. He's commanded us to sing. But I wonder if you went all the way down, if you really dug to the bedrock, if you could tell people why Christians, maybe more than any other religion in this world, are a singing people. Why is song and music right at the heart of what we do? I've woken up many mornings in Muslim-majority countries where I've heard those uh, prayers sung out loud, but it is far different than the singing of God's people in the Christian church. I lived and grew up in uh, Taiwan. I got to hear uh, lots of amazing uh, music in that time and space, but you know what Buddhists weren't? They weren't a singing people the way that God's people, Christian people, are singing people. Why at the bedrock are we a singing people? The answer I think we can find in Psalm 132 might be surprising to you, and it's this. It has everything to do with King David. That's probably not the answer that you would have given to the person saying, why are Christians singers? What I'm telling you this morning is it has everything to do with David. Because what we'll see on this way towards singing, uh, seeing that so, uh, saints sing with jubilant joy in the presence of the divine dwelling is that we've got to understand the vow of David. We've got to understand the oath of the Lord and where to worship. And first, the Davidic vow, David's vow. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Now that's a specific word. David's favor, all the hardships he endured how he swore to the Lord, how he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. So David is starting off by making a vow. And and we get the idea here that there is something going on with this favor and this hardship, this favor and affliction that David is experiencing. But we've got to notice first that David is not the writer of this psalm. This psalm is about David. It's about the Lord also, but it is written by somebody who witnessed David very closely, who is writing a firsthand account of what it is that David bore a vow to the Lord for. 
So what do we need to know about David? We need to know that as a shepherd boy, he uh, was faithful in God to conquer all of his battles, and that he actually went out to serve lunch to his brothers that were standing in front of Goliath, yes, the famous giant, and he took on that giant, and he became a warrior. That warrior uh, became a king. That king was very musical. What do you need to know about David? He was a humble shepherd, risen to a king. He was a musician that was a great warrior, and we also need to know that he was a great sinner. David was filled with passion. He was a passionate man that was after God's own heart, but he was also an adulterous murderer, and here we see that he had both favor and affliction. He swore in verse 2 to the Lord. He vowed to the mighty one. What did he vow? He said, verse 3, look at it with me. I will not enter my house or have sleep to my eyes. I will not rest. Have you ever heard that expression? I'm not going to rest until I do blank. This is what David said. I am not going to rest until what? Until, verse 5, I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one. What is he talking about? Why is he saying that he's going to find a place, that he's going to make a dwelling for the mighty one? Verse 7 tells us a little bit about what he means. It says, as a response to what David has done, the psalmist is actually saying, let us then go to his dwelling place. Whose dwelling place? The Lord's dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. More second on the word worship there. What is his footstool? He's telling us that what David is saying is, is that he will not give rest until he has brought the ark, the footstool, the, uh, the chair of God, the place of God's presence, the glory of God back to Jerusalem. Now, here's where we have to have a little bit of a history lesson. And if you'll stick with me, this isn't in the passage, but I think that there's a great payoff in knowing what this psalm is about simply by knowing what has gone on and transpired in David's life. If we were to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 5, we would find that David is there anointed as king. So this is after Goliath. He's been uh, you know, chased around. He's, uh, he's exhausted in some way uh, from all of the travails of his life, but then he is anointed as king, and his first thing that he does is he goes and defeats the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? This is where Goliath came from. This was a group of people that was opposed to God's people, and what they had done was they had ended up stealing the ark from God's people. That ark actually cursed them. There's all kinds of curses that come by way of being an ungodly people in God's presence. They ended up having uh, tumors and things like this, and so they actually put the ark out, and it was in storage for about 30 years away from God's people, and so what David does is he goes and conquers the Philistines. That's the first act that he has as king. He defeats the Philistines. Then in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David goes back to uh, Baal Judah for the ark. He goes there to get the ark, and he is passionate about God's glory. He's passionate about returning this ark. He's making a vow to the Lord, I'm going to bring the ark back to God's people with God's place and make a place for him. I'm going to make a divine dwelling. So he swears it to the Lord. He makes a vow with the Lord. And so what he does is this, uh, this uh, ark that has fascinated him since he was a child that he would have heard about there in Bethlehem in its mercy seat and its power. He would have heard stories about how it was stored in the tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses. Now you may not know this, but there are actually two different tabernacles in the Old Testament. 
two literal tents that God's ark was put into. The first one was the Mosaic Tabernacle. We need to know something about the Mosaic Tabernacle. It was made, uh, sacrifices, blood sacrifices were made there at the tabernacle. And so people went and worshiped God at the tabernacle with God's presence in the tabernacle by making blood sacrifices. Now the Davidic tabernacle is a little different. David actually goes and gets this thing that has fascinated him since he was a child, and he wants to return it to Jerusalem. So he goes up, they put it on a cart, it's a new cart, with oxen, and this is a problem. It may not appear as a problem to us, but God gave very specific instructions on how to carry God's ark to God's places. He said, hey, go get the priests. You're going to get long poles. You're going to drive them through these special made things on either side of the ark. It was very heavy. It was made of gold. So this thing was very important and it would be marched out in front of the people and that's how you carried it. Now there, David doesn't realize it. Some of the tradition, some of the maybe expectation has gotten lost and they're like, that seems too heavy. It seems like too much of a mess. You know what? The Philistines used to cart this thing around on a cart. Let's make a new ark. Uh, sorry, a new cart, let's get oxen, let's pull it back to Jerusalem. And God didn't like that because he'd been really specific about how his ark was supposed to be treated. So what they did was they put it on this uh, cart, they start wheeling it towards Jerusalem, and then the oxen stumble. You know this story maybe, that the oxen stumble and the ark starts falling off of the cart and a man named Uzzah, who is there near the ark, goes to steady the ark, places his hand on this holy object where the presence of God is and his sin cannot be in that presence and he is struck dead in a moment. So Uzzah is struck dead. So then David's got this whole thing going on in his heart. He's, uh, he wants the ark. He wants it in Jerusalem. He wants it to be with God's people. But when it was out amongst the Philistines, it was causing all kinds of havoc. And now he looks at this man named Uzzah, and he's struck dead. And he's wondering, have I just decided to bring this uh, curse on God's people? So what he does is he takes it and puts it in the house of actually uh, um, uh, a person that was adjacent to all of the Philistines, but a righteous man named Ubed-Edom. Ubed-Edom has this house, and so he stores the ark there, and what happens in a very short period of time is that Ubed-Edom actually experiences unbelievable blessing. The ark there in this faithful man's house produces blessing. So he has all of these things like come into, he comes into riches, he's uh, given lots of, uh, you know, uh, health. There are lots of things that happen that are really, really good for Obed-Edom. And so David goes, let's give this a second try. So he goes out, this time not with a cart but with poles and priests and a linen ephod that you could evidently see through and was pretty blousy and ended up exposing himself. And as he's marching the, this uh, ark, God's presence, back into Jerusalem, he is out in front of it dancing like crazy. He's so excited. He's so passionate to return God's ark to his people. David returns there and he brings it in. So why this uh, language about favor and affliction. Why this, why this language about affliction? What was the affliction? This all seems very good. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David goes to Nathan the prophet and says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. What I want to do is build a great and mighty temple. I'm going to do it. What do you say? And Nathan goes, green light, let's do it. That's a good idea. And then Nathan goes home, goes to sleep that night, 
God comes to him and says, David is not allowed to build my temple. So this thing that David wanted more than anything, to build God a house and place his ark in it, was something that God said, no, you may not do that. So all of us have something that we're really, really passionate about wanting to do, and we just can't quite get there. That's the affliction that it's talking about here. David wanted to do this thing, and God said, no, I will not do that. But when he takes away that kind of blessing, he gives one even greater, and that is the favor that it talks about. David's affliction is that while he was able to return the ark to Jerusalem, he was prohibited from building the temple. That's David's vow. That's the fulfillment of David's vow. But now what we want to learn about is the Lord's oath. The Lord's oath. Verse 11. Look at it with me. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. So this time it's not David doing it. It's the Lord. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. This is the Lord's oath from which he will not turn back. You've already heard Andrew read about that this morning. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. What is it? That one of your sons, one of the sons of your body, I will set on the throne. So while uh, the Lord doesn't let David build him a house, he pronounces a marvelous blessing, a great, what verse 1 would call, favor on David. And what he says is something very specific. I will raise up your offspring after you, and he shall build a house for my name. Now most directly, what is that talking about? Well, David literally has a son named Solomon, and the Lord swears this oath to David that while you're not going to be able to build my temple, I'm going to actually bring your son up, set him on your king, and he will be allowed to build my house. That's a pretty big deal because kings didn't always have the longest lifespan. uh, They weren't always able to give a heritage to their son. It wasn't obvious that David's son was going to sit on the throne next. And here, God actually swears it to him, gives him an oath. I will put your son on the throne and he, not you, but he will build a temple. So David receives this like uh, sure oath that a temple will be built and that it will be his son to do it. But he starts speaking about something even grander. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's got to be very perplexing to David because he's not expecting his son to live forever. If, if someone came up to you this day and said, hey, listen, uh, you're not going to be king, but your, your son is going to be king, and you know what? He's going to uh, last on that throne forever. You would be like, how in the world is he going to do that? Forever is a really long time. I happen to know something about biology. I know that everybody that I've ever known uh, has died, is dying, or will die. Like, that everybody that we know, that's going to be the way that it is. And so this is a very curious way that God chooses to bless him. What he says is that David's son will sit on a forever throne. So I want you to hear this, not just in the real-time context here in this uh, psalm about Solomon. I want you to hear this in the context of the great gospel that we believe. God promises David great favor. He swears an oath to him. I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. While we wish oftentimes to offer God great and mighty things, God is the better gift giver. 
God is the better gift giver because he promises things that will actually last forever. 2 Samuel verse 7 says this, You will not make for me a house. God says this to David. Rather, I will make you a house. You will not make my house. I will make you a house. I will do great things. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ has a throne and he sits on it forever. The gospel is this, that Jesus is building a forever home for us. But what you've got to know before we get there is that Jesus had a first throne. He had a first house. Do you know it? His first throne was not one of glory. It was certainly not one seated in the heavenly places. It was not one at the right hand of God. Rather, it was one underneath the hand of God's judgment. Jesus' first throne was the one that he hung on. It was a cruel cross. It was a brutal cross where he gave his life. That was his first inglorious and crude throne. But then his first home was not up in the heavenly places. It was not a people that he was going to dwell with. It was a tomb. That was his first house. Jesus goes to the cross. He pays for our sins. He dies there completely and totally taking care of everybody's sins who would put their faith in him. And then he goes into a tomb for three days, making his dwelling there amongst the dead. But then the glorious news is that Jesus is raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven and then he sits at the right hand of God. And verse 12 says this, If your sons keep my commandment and my testimonies, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Did you guys just hear that? So listen, I know we talk about the gospel a lot at City Church, and we can get a little used to it. What, I want, what I, this psalm is saying to us is that Jesus is going to be seated on the throne of David, and he's going to reign there forever. And then those people that are justified in him, that believe his testimonies and have faith in him, will sit on that throne with him. How long? For just a short time? For a little bit of time? For a few eons? No, forever. That's the promise that was made. That is God's oath to David. What a glorious gospel we have. God's covenant is one of grace alone. God tells us that we obtain it through faith alone. If your sons keep my covenant and keep my testimonies, if they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the testimony of Jesus, if you receive God's covenant through faith in Jesus, then you will sit on his throne forever. That's the promise that's made right here in this psalm. And the reason why it is so important is because it can give us assurance. It can give us great assurance. Verse 11 says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. I wonder if you're ever like tempted to think that uh, God's glorious covenant of grace is not for you. That, that you thought that you partook in it, you have faith in the testimonies of Christ, but your sin is just too great, or your apathy is just too, uh, too prevalent in your life, or that there is something that is keeping you from worshiping the one true God. And what you need to hear is, is that David made a vow. He, he was going to bring this uh, ark into uh, Jerusalem, but even that vow, we really don't know all that much about today. Where is the ark? 
Where's the ark? Where is the temple but in disarray? What is Jerusalem like at all? David's vow is important. It's helpful for us to understand. But what you really need to know, and I mean know to your soul, is that God, the Father, makes an oath. And that is that he is going to place Jesus on a forever throne. And he's going to invite you, by grace, through faith, to sit on it with him. How long? Forever. You can have assurance in this faith. David's faithful vow is to find a dwelling for the Lord. The Lord's sure oath is to make David into a dwelling. And that's where we come to our final point this morning. Where do we worship? Where where do we worship? Verse 7, the psalmist kind of interrupts the allusions to history. Where he's talking about these things that had happened way back in uh, 2 Samuel. And it interrupts to tell us how we respond to this. Verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place, worshiping at his footstool. The response that we today, the response that Christians should have is one of worship. In light of all of this great gospel, we worship, but we have to ask where. We are to worship in the Lord's divine dwelling. Now, now when I say that, in the context of this psalm, there is a specific thing that is meant here. There is a specific thing that is meant in this psalm, and that is that David's tabernacle with the ark is where we need to go up to worship. Why? Because this psalm was most likely written between the time that David made this vow and that the Lord made the oath and that he went and got the ark and that he brought it back and that he put it in his Davidic tabernacle, but it was before the completion of the temple. There's a lot of reasons why I think that is. A lot of it has to do just with the uh, way that it talks, the tenses that it talks about here in the psalm. So when we ask this psalm, where are we to worship? The answer is at David's tabernacle. Now, I mentioned earlier that David's tabernacle was not like the tabernacle of Moses. It was not a place for blood sacrifices, but rather it was a place for a different kind of offering. You may not know this. When we ask the question, why are we a worshiping people? Why are we a singing people? David has everything to do with it. When he sets up this tabernacle and puts the ark there, David in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 lists out all of these priests. All of these priests that are supposed to be helping in the offering of a sacrifice. In the offering of a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was song. It was not a blood sacrifice. It was not the killing of a lamb to cover over sins, but rather song lifted up to a mighty God. In verse 31 of 1 Chronicles chapter 6, it it stops listing all of the priests, and it says what he put them in charge of. He put in charge, they were put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. These were the men who took David's psalms that he had written and conducted the musical worship after the ark was rested there. That's the language that it's used in 2 Chronicles, is that after it was rested there, these men led out in musical worship. Why is this significant? It's because right in the middle of Jerusalem, right on top of Mount Zion, there was this tent, there was this Davidic tent, there was this Davidic tabernacle where the presence of God was put in it, and there were priests that went there, and daily 
orchestrated music, harps, lyres, clashing cymbals, wrote songs and sung them out loud right there in the middle of Zion to where the whole city could hear. What is it that we do here today? But gather around in the presence of God, being elevated and lifted up onto Mount Zion, singing songs so that the rest of the city might hear. It's the same thing. We're given a pattern here at the Davidic tabernacle. And maybe uh, our good uh, theologians and Bible studies would ask the question, why song? This is where the history of worship actually intersects with you. David, this musician king, offered up song sacrifices in the Davidic temple. Why now? Because years after the temple is constructed, the Jews neglected right worship, and the prophet Amos actually rebukes them. In Amos chapter 9, verse 11, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth, the tabernacle, the tent of who? Of David that has fallen down, and I will repair it, I will raise it up, I will rebuild it. Why? That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. You're like, Chris, this is getting too into the details. Why is it important? Why are we going from uh, 2 Samuel to uh, 1 Chronicles to Amos, and then we will be going there also to Acts chapter 15 and 16, there where the council that is uh, actually assembled in Jerusalem, James overseeing it, is dealing with the question of can Gentiles worship God as true believers without being circumcised and following the law? And you know what James says there? He says that, of course they can, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, all the nations who are called by my name. James actually quotes that passage from Amos. He quotes it, saying that the Gentiles are true converts. Why does this matter? Okay, listen, if you got lost in the details, there's a lot of different streams and threads that are getting woven together here this morning. If I can put it as simply as possible, what I want you to know is that you are the tabernacle of David. You are the place of God's presence. You are the new Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because that's where God's presence was. If I were to ask you this morning, hey, why are we a worshiping and singing people? You may not have been able to get the bedrock of that, but every Christian that uh, comes into faith knows that God lives inside of them, that the Holy Spirit indwells their being, indwells their soul, that you actually are a temple of the Lord. This morning, you need to hear this. You are the Davidic tabernacle. And if you are the Davidic tabernacle, if you are the place of God's presence, then there is a response. Psalm 132 says that there is a response, and it is worship. You are the tabernacle of David. You are the house of David. You are the throne-sitting, singing saints that are talked about here. I want to prove it to you. Let's read verse 13 together. For the Lord has chosen from Zion. He, uh, sorry, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. That word dwelling, when you go back and do your study this week, is going to repeat several times. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Now, let me ask you a question right there. 
Is his resting place in the temple? Right now, today, is it in the temple? I mean the Solomonic temple. Is it in a temple there in Jerusalem? Is God's presence in a holy of holies in a temple? And the answer is no. So if you read this passage thinking that he has made his resting place in a building in the Middle East forever, here I will dwell for I have desired it, then you are sorely mistaken. You, you would be enormously depressed because God said something that did not come true. So where is his forever dwelling place? He says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests, this is the second time that it's saying this in this psalm, her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout with joy. Here I will make the horn, make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe in shame, but on him his crown will shine. What is this saying to us? What it's saying is that the Lord has chosen you from Zion. Chosen the Jews? Chosen you. He is desired for his dwelling place. The temple? No, you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Lord has chosen you. He has desired you for his dwelling place. You are David's divine dwelling. And in verse 9 and verse 16, it says, Her priests I will clothe with salvation. The other verse says righteousness. Her saints will shout for joy. So we've got these priests and we've got these saints and the good news of the gospel in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9 is that you are a chosen race. You are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own what? Possession. You are there to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. What you need to know this morning is that saints sing with jubilant joy, not in the presence of the divine dwelling the way that it was in this psalm, but as the divine dwelling. I want to say that over you again this morning. Saints sing with jubilant joy as the divine dwelling. That's our goal. That's our job. That's what we do when God is present. You worship here at City Church, we are after a revival of joyful worship. And sometimes we forget it. We're a little languid. We're a little listless. We, we have a hard time coming in from a really discouraging week and lifting our hands and just proclaiming the excellencies of God. But if he dwells within you, if you are that divine dwelling, you must do it. You must do it week in and week out. You must do it every day that you sing for joy. It's not about the style of music. It's not about the volume of the music. Listen, there are places with different styles that might uh, help you worship and uh, praise God for that. I'll give you my honest opinion about the way that we do worship. It's a little awkward, right? It's family meeting. It's safe space talking about things here. I honestly don't have a style of worship that I care about. I really don't. I want the words that we sing to be true. I want for them to be rooted in the word of God. I want for us to sing them loudly. But if we had hymnals and our people were worshiping, I would praise God. If we were singing uh, uh, big band kinds of songs and people were singing, I would praise God. I want for our church to be a place of jubilant joy, of singing, a revived place of joyful worship. That is what we are after. And so what I want to ask you is not 
not do you like the style of our music, do you like the volume of our music, what I want to ask you is, do you believe the gospel? What I want to ask you is, is the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart? And when I ask you that, I want for you to be enlivened in joyful worship. So we've talked, this is the very last point. We've talked about how this Davidic tabernacle was filled with song and singing. And it was a different kind of sacrifice than a blood sacrifice. We do not offer blood sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the one true blood sacrifice. We have no more sacrifices to make. When you come here into this tabernacle of people together, we do not need to make any kind of sacrifice by way of blood for payment of your sins because if you cast your lot with Jesus, if you put your faith in him, there is nothing required of you. But there is a sacrifice that we do make. There is an offering that we do make. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of the lips. City Church, we are an outpost of Zion. David's tabernacle was built on Mount Zion, but Mount Zion is expanding to encompass all of the heavens and all of the earth. It's going to cover over all things, and we are an outpost of that kingdom, that divine dwelling. And so I want to be bold this morning. I want to tell you, sing, be zealous, dance dangerously like David. If you see it in Scripture and it's worship of God, do it. Do it in an orderly way. Don't distract other people. Don't be ridiculous. But like, feel free to worship in any way that you see in Scripture. Our gatherings are for jubilant and joyful worship. I wonder if you would join me in that. Let's pray for those things. God and Father, you have made us into David's divine dwelling. Lord, you uh, tell us in this thread of Scripture from uh, 2 Samuel through the Chronicles all the way to Amos and then to uh, Acts and then to Hebrew. It's so marvelous that your Scripture hangs together and that there are threads like this, that you paint one beautiful tapestry of the gospel. Father, we cast our lots with Jesus this morning. We want to be a jubilantly joyful place of worship. So Lord, as we sing, Lord, would our songs rise up as a sacrifice, as an offering in front of you, good and pleasing. Lord, we're not worried about being too pitchy. We're not worried about like uh, those of us who have terrible voices. We're not worried about that. We just want you to hear our joyful noise, proclaiming the goodness of the gospel, proclaiming your glory, proclaiming and uttering with the Spirit in total confidence that you are satisfied in Christ and that you love us so dearly. Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention towards communion, as we turn our uh, uh, attention towards singing of songs. Lord, we pray for your continued blessing. Amen.